Would you open up your Bibles to Ephesians chapter 2? Saved by grace. Ephesians chapter 2. Starting in verse 1. The Apostle Paul says, And you were dead in your trespasses and sins. And once you once lived, following the course of the world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and of the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. But God, being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved. And he raised us up with him and sealed us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus, so that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness toward us in Christ. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not your own doing. It's the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast before God. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God has prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. Let's pray. Father, we thank you that you saved us by sheer grace, God, undeserved mercy and favor that you've bestowed upon us, Father God. Though it cost us nothing, it cost you everything in the giving of your son, Father God, and dying for our sins and our trespasses, which we were once dead, Father God, but now we have made alive with Christ, Father God. We thank you, God, for this saving faith, which is also a gift you give us, Lord. God, we ask you to breathe upon the text, Father God. Make it alive for our contemporary years, Father God, that we can see the relevance of your ancient word, Father God that you are the same yesterday, today, and forever, God. Your word does not change. It meets the needs of your people throughout any generation, Father God, every millennium, Father God. The truth still sets men free. Breathe upon your text, we ask, in Christ's precious name. I'm not sure how many people in this room are like myself and find themselves watching late-night TV, don't raise your hands. And those nice, funny infomercials that come up about those before and after pictures, that one dietary pill that's going to change everything in three days. Take this and you will lose 20 pounds and then you see a testimonial and you see someone who lost 20 or 30 pounds running around in a bathing suit down the beach and they're living happily ever after and, uh, you know, and that's the before and after picture you see they show you and then you have the testimony of what I was like and how this magic pill just transformed my life and just like everything's good now and I'm a different human being and so on and so forth and then we fall asleep. And we fall asleep with the Oreo cookies and the milk in our hand. And, uh, and it's just a commercial is what it is. And, but really what we just read tonight is a before and after picture, spiritually. 
And the Apostle Paul is reminding these people that they were once something, but now they've become something else. And it's all because of one thing, the grace of God. He's reminding them where they were once in their life when God wasn't in their life, when Christ wasn't the center of their life. Uh, The emptiness, the hopelessness, the confusion of what life is without God in this world. What God has done for humanity and only God could do is what Paul is talking about here. God met humanity's greatest need in Jesus Christ to reconcile humanity back to God through the sacrifice of his son. To make people right with himself, to change the unchangeable situation that man is powerless to do. And Paul does this in the classic before and after picture, like we said, like our infomercial, it captures the imagination. Can this wonder pill be so good, we ask? Who hasn't saw a commercial like that and thought, maybe if I get the air buster, I'll have a six pack by the time I go on vacation. Who hasn't thought about it? Who hasn't considered the special bike that's going to shed the weight as you walk and run simultaneously at the same time? Who who hasn't? Has it not captured your imagination? I'm in this business. My clients' homes are filled with apparatuses that they sell on TV. There's clothing on it. There's plants on it. There's everything but a body on it. Can it be that good? Can it change me to look 20 years younger? Get me ready for that reunion, that vacation. Now I know there's a true truism to that. People think that way. That's why it makes billions of dollars. It's a huge market. But this is the Bible's way of speaking to our hearts on spiritual matters. Everything in our reading tonight is of a spiritual kind. We could ask, is the problem that bad from a spiritual, moral point of view? Is it really that bad? Are we really dead in our sins and transgressions? Or we could say, have I blown it in my life? Would God do a makeover for me? Can Can God do something for me? I'm longing, I'm craving for something. There's an emptiness in me. I recognize that there is something wrong within me, but I'm so bad, I'm so lost, I'm so gone. Would God actually consider me? Would he do for me what he has done for countless other people? Or I'm not really that bad. Spiritually, I I look pretty good. I don't need that diet pill. I exercise, I eat well. I'm doing okay. I'm ready to meet God and give an account of my life on earth, of all my inner thoughts and desires, words and actions. I'm ready. I'm ready to meet my maker. I have no fear of death. I have no fear of God. The apostle is writing to Christians, not to non-believers. Christians who were converted in a place called Ephesus, and today that is modern Turkey, northern Turkey. And he's writing to them that they will understand the full implications of what God has done through them, to them, in Christ. He's laying out the theological implications of what it means to be a Christian now. What happened to you that day you said, Jesus, come into my life and forgive me of my sins. And and things started to change, sometimes quickly, sometimes slowly, but they're changing. 
And he's writing to encourage them. So they can live it out in their personal lives with gratitude. Gratitude is a hallmark characteristic, or should be anyway, of the Christian faith. Sometimes we fall short of it, and we forget to exercise gratitude. But we come to church to recalibrate and to get start up again for spiritual gratitude for what God has done for us. And that's what Paul is doing here. So whether these converts were from a Jewish background or a Gentile background, whether they were rich or poor, whether they were educated or not, male or female, slave or free, they're called to live in harmony. Harmony is a good word. I think as human beings today, we, we seek harmony. We want it in our own lives. We want it in our families. We want it in our communities. We love to see it in our society. God's way of doing it is to remind us that we're all debtors to God, no matter what background we come from. Whether we're honored and praised by men or despised by men, we have a common need from God. It's called forgiveness. And that's what Paul is doing here. He's reminding that Jesus Christ has made the playing field even by showing that all are sinners in need of God's grace, that all have fallen short of the glory of God, and all have a past called being dead in sin and transgressions. And we all fulfill the desires of the flesh and of the mind, and we were all by nature children of wrath. And that their time on life is not more valuable than others, that we all need God's grace. Nothing can change a society than the most common denominator. That most common denominator is we all need God's mercy and grace. It removes human pride. It removes human independence. It removes the the ability to look down at other people. And that's what Paul is addressing if you read the rest of the epistle when you go home. And I'm sure everybody's going to do that when you go home. You will see in chapters 4 and 5 that that's what Paul is addressing. Paul is addressing how converts coming out of a, 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 a varied social economic background to come together and live in harmony with one another. And he's reminding them of what Jesus has done for all of them. He does this first by showing their miserable plight of what they used to be before Christ came into their life. Then what God did for them through Christ. And then what the after picture looks like, being zealous for good works. He starts in verses 1 to 3. And you were dead in your trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, that's Satan, and the spirit that is now working the sons of disobedience. He says, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and of the mind, and we were by nature children of wrath, like the rest of mankind. He reminds them of the grave spiritual condition they were all in, that we were all in. He sums it up, the total, by one word, he says, dead. Spiritually dead. That means unresponsive to the moral law of God, written in the Ten Commandments or written on the conscience of men. There is no affection for God. There was a time they might have been religious, but their religion would have ended at the church door, and they didn't live for God. They didn't love God. They were dead to God. 
the indictment goes further. He says, they followed the course of the world. They lived in a godless society where God's reality had no jurisdiction. A society that lived to please its own pleasures and self-gratification. God's good world had degraded into a self-gratifying society. He goes further, Paul does. He goes behind the scene, even unmasking Satan himself, calling him the prince of the power of the air, as the originator and father of disobedience, calling him the prince of the air. And somehow, unbeknownst to them, they were all influenced by his cunning and beguiling. And now are heirs of Satan's same fate. Paul calls it the just wrath of God. In verse 3, Paul identifies what made them spiritually dead. He says they lived in the passions of their sinful flesh and carried out the desires of the body and the mind. Sin is that inner craving that seeks its own fulfillment, even at the expense of others. These are passions and desires that could be natural and good, but have gone crazy. They're out of control. There is no restraint. There's no love for God. There's no consideration of the moral law. It expresses itself in thought and desire, also in deed. It possesses the whole person, their mind and their heart, their thoughts and their cravings. There's no escape. The only natural verdict God can give is that like Satan, they are children of wrath like the rest of humanity. This is the full weight of God's displeasure against sin and all who selfishly live in it. It's interesting. But it's into this world dominated by sin and selfishness and Satan and lostness and godlessness that the Son of God came to champion the cause and to save them from their misery. He says it this way, but God being rich in mercy... Because of the great love which he loved us, he might as well said, God wasn't intimidated by your deadness and sin, and God wasn't intimidated by your unbelief, and God wasn't intimidated by your careless and reckless living. God wasn't intimidated. But God, being rich in mercy because of the great love in which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, he made us alive together with Christ. It's by grace you have been saved. And not just that, but he raised us up and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. So that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness towards us in Christ Jesus. The only answer to their sin and the only answer to the just wrath of God was the mercy of God. Paul didn't tell them to hurry up and become better. Work yourself out of that miserable state. Try harder, be more kind, or be more compassionate. He didn't lay any law on them. As humans, we're weak and we're frail, and laws are meant to be broken, even the moral law. But it's only God's mercy that can save them. Paul calls it here God who is rich in mercy. His mercy is a deliberate expression of his love for them, his love for us. Love is the motivating element. Mercy is its expression. That even while they were willfully dead spiritually, 
God remedied the situation on their behalf. In spite of their self-seeking, God sought them. And spiritually raised them from the inside out and made them alive. Alive to Him. Alive. To live for Him and not for self any longer. He gave them new affections to please Him. And this is all done by grace. By responding to a message of hope. A message of forgiveness. A message of grace. This is what changed and rocked the ancient world. And set the ancient world into a new course of human history. The gospel. The Christian era. And not just that. But he gave them new identities. Instead of being children of Satan, children of wrath, dead in sin, he gave them new identities as seated with Christ. And as sons and daughters of God, not children of wrath anymore, but recipients of grace. He's adopted them into the family of God. Enemies are now children. All at the expense of Jesus and his suffering for them. A suffering that removed the wrath of God, which is his just reaction to sin. He reminds them again of this extraordinary display of love and mercy. And he says, for by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not even your own doing. It's all a gift of God. It's not a result of works, so that no one may boast. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. With one stroke of the pen, Paul wipes out all hope that any man could find favor with God by their religious resume, by their social works, or their good intentions. He wipes it out. Summing it, something he sums up in one word, boasting before God. Earned Favor. The only answer for sin is God's grace, not human effort. For 2,000 years, the gospel has been preached. Most of us know to one degree or another, whether we're Protestant or Roman Catholic, there is some kind of understanding, whether it's uh, elementary of God's grace and our need for it. But this was new 2,000 years ago, I can rest assure you. They had no idea what hit them when they heard this itinerant preacher preaching about the grace of God and the wrath of God and the free forgiveness paid for by Jesus Christ, full and free. This was new and hot off the press 2,000 years ago. I would say even today it's still new. People still don't understand the gospel. As long as men rely on themselves, they'll never reach out to God. Ever. God has done something for them. And now God called them to believe it. Faith trust in what God has done. And what God has says. It's all a gift from God. Paid for by Jesus. And it's eternal pardon. Full and free. With the added dimension that they were now new creations, as verse 10 says. Uh, uh, from the inside out. They look the same, but they're filled with this new spiritual power. To live for God. But instead of being dead to sin, they are alive to God now. 
Instead of walking according to the self-centered sinful nature with his desires and passions, they follow the new inclinations of love in their heart towards God and towards other people. There's a genuine love for humanity. There's a genuine love for God now that has transpired in their hearts. They heard a message. They responded. They bring nothing but themselves and their sin and ask for mercy and something happened on the inside. They're saved by grace. They follow the new inclinations of love for God and for humanity. Paul calls all this new inclinations of love, he says, good works prepared by God before the foundations of the world. Remember something, it's not what a person does, but it's the reason we do it now. It's the reason. The Christian is the person that meets the needs of humanity and meets the needs, whether they like us or not, whether they're friend or foe, we meet the need. It's the why that promotes any good work. It's not what is done. It's why we do it. This was the motivating influence 2,000 years ago that brought two warring people together. The Jew and the Gentile. For thousands of years, there was a wall of separation between the Jewish state and the unbelievers around them. The Jew considered anything outside of Judaism as unclean. But now, all of a sudden, in little church buildings, and little house buildings, in little meetings down by the river, Jew and Gentile were coming together and loving the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. They were what the Bible calls a new creation, a new entity called the Christian church. And it's the Christian church that represents God and his grace in this world. We are an extension of the love of God. We're an extension of the mercy of God. We're an extension of the patience and kindness of God. This has been the believer's experience ever since, changed from the inside out by hearing a message of mercy and forgiveness. A response to a message of forgiveness that changes their life from the inside out and gives them new affections for God. Nothing can change a person or a society like the love of God. When it comes to applying these ten verses, this ancient text to us today, there's a lot we have to bridge. There's a big gap 2,000 years ago. And I'm going to work this out in two questions for all of us. Is it really that bad? Is it really that bad? Can we sit back and say, well, well, Paul, maybe it's not all that bad. This dead, and we're very religious culture, aren't we? We read a lot of spiritual books. I'm sure most of the people's bookshelves here, or at least their Kindles and iPads, are filled with some sort of spiritual book, or at least one spiritual book that's trying to help us become a better human being. Are we really dead, Paul? I go to church. I do good things. I'm certainly not that bad. And we can ask another question. Is God really that good? Can I go into death row and tell them about the love of God? Do we have the jurisdiction? Do we have the right to go to to tell the worst of the worst, at least what we think is the worst of the worst, and tell them that God does love you? 
And he's willing to forgive you also, as he forgave the penitent thief on the cross. With his last breath, he forgave that man, that criminal. Is it really that bad? And if it is, is God really that good? Can he change me? The answer to both of those questions is yes. It really is that bad. And God is really that good. We live in a culture that has abandoned any sense, any real sense of morality. There's a sliding scale of morality. The culture is desensitized. They also find it hard to see the spiritual side of life with questions like, does it really matter? This whole Jesus thing. Does it really, really matter? Get with the times, you Christians. You're... You're old, old-time religion. Uh, Christianity needs to evolve. Become of age. Get with it. Change certain things. It's the culture we live in. Also, the reality of Satan as a beguiling entity is not really taken seriously. Who wants to think of, a, of Satan blinding our minds? It's, it's laughed at in today's society. 2,000 years ago, that was not laughed at. But it's interesting, though society really doesn't take Satan literally or too seriously anyway, uh, Hollywood pumps out supernatural movies by the dozens. And it, who has seen a supernatural movie within the last year? People flock to it. There's a morbid interest in the occult and demons and devils. They like to be entertained by the thought, but they don't want to really think it's real. It's the culture we live in. People have become desensitized, not just morally, but spiritually, as if Satan really doesn't exist, or he really doesn't have power, at least over me. I'm pretty sophisticated, intelligent. People like me. He doesn't have nothing on me. Or does he? And the thought of God being a God of wrath goes against everything the 21st century mind can think. It's repulsive to the modern mind. It's insulting to our intellects that God would be a God of wrath. It's interesting. Even though humans have a cry for justice within the heart, we all do. And we even demand it. Wherever we see injustice, we demand justice. It's a natural cry of our humanity. Even when it's not real, then it's perceived that there's an injustice done to us. Don't we want blood? But God, for some reason, is not allowed to be angered at all. Isn't that convenient? Even though he's the creator and sustainer, uh, man hasn't invented oxygen or rain or sun. They still belong to God. That's his commodity. Makes the world go around. For some reason, he's not allowed to be angered by what he sees. He's not allowed to have a cry of justice within his own heart. He always works for man's good. He's a benevolent God. Yet this God has no rights and must sit back, keep silent, and only speak when he's spoken to. 
the kind of air of arrogance we have within the 21st century. But when we come down to it, it's all true. History teaches us if we're honest and have an honest evaluation of our own lives, we can see it in our own lives. This doesn't mean there's no good and decent people in the world. There's plenty of people that are still compassionate, still concerned, are still helpful, still considerate. But we're all on a spectrum when it comes to sin, every, every human being. We're on a spectrum. We can be on the spectrum that you really can't see it. These are more refined pride, vanity, greed in the heart. It, it's there. If you watch it long enough, you'll see it. On the other side of the spectrum, we're all the bad people, what we point our finger at. They're the bad ones. They get all God's attention. They're the one God's angry with. They're the one that God's wrath is against. Not, not this side of the spectrum. Speaking to two good friends of mine that have autistic children, they explained to me about the spectrum of autism. Some people here might be familiar with it. Uh, these both children I worked with in, in the gym for many years. Uh, one of them is a very good friend of mine. But he's on a spectrum, and, and the parents explained to me what that spectrum is. And they all are on, they're all the uh, called autistic, autistic I should say. But some people you don't see it. They're social, they're playful, they're in the workplace. They're on one side of the spectrum. And on the other side of the spectrum are others who, are, who have a hard time dealing with life. In a sense, that's who we are. In our sin. In the deadness of our sin. We're on the spectrum. You might not see it as clearly as someone else on the other side of the spectrum. But God sees it all. He sees the inclinations of our heart. He sees the passions in the flesh. And he has jurisdiction over the mind. And he has jurisdiction over the thought. He has jurisdiction over the attitude as much as the act and the deed and the word. Even human beings in our own justice system will condemn a man for a greater crime because it was premeditated, dealt with the heart, it dealt with the mind, as opposed to a crime of passion. Something happens spontaneously in the heat of anger. So does God. We're all on the spectrum. Each person has a duty to serve God and to serve others. This text is more about the unique love of God, to love and to save those who one degree have rejected him. This is not just about human depravity. This is about the love and mercy of God. People can care for others, and be compassionate for others, but rarely will a person ever care for their enemies. People can desire to help people who want it, like friends and families, maybe neighbors. People can care for the homeless, but how many open their doors to welcome the homeless in and to nurture them until their wounds of mind and soul and body are healed? 
But God seeks people who don't even ask or care. God seeks the outcast as well as the honor, the good, the bad, the ugly, the atheist, the Satanist, the adulterer, the sexually immoral, the murderers. God seeks everyone, loves everyone. They all receive the same quality and attention of God with no distinctions. Human beings are the only creature that makes distinctions. God does not do that. He sees us all on the spectrum and we're all dead in sin and transgression and in need of God's grace and redemption. There are no distinctions with God. We all need grace. And that's what Paul was doing 2,000 years ago, reminding this community of believers that one shouldn't think they're better than the other, that they were all dead in sin and transgressions, transgressions at one time, And if not for the mercy and grace of God, that's where they would be. I'll close with this. I think any honest evaluation of our life can see that in some way or another we're on the spectrum of sin and need of God's intervention and grace. We need to take ownership of that part. Not judge someone else's part on their spectrum, but we need to search within our own heart. And to recognize that we've all fall short of the glory of God. We've all sinned against God. To one degree or another. Whether just in thought and word and action and deed. We all have. And that God wants to forgive us all. And to show us his unique love. Everybody in this room. And everybody in this world. Is either in verse 1, 2 and 3. Or in verses 4 to 10. The Bible doesn't give any other distinction. Every human being is still dead in sin and transgressions. Or those who put their faith in Christ have been made alive with Christ. It's called saved and unsaved. In darkness or in the light. Spiritually dead or spiritually alive to God. And the difference of getting out of verses 1, 2, and 3 and jumping and making the transition into verses 4 to 10 with new affections for God, there is nothing anyone can do. You can't buy your way. You can't work your way. You can't hope your way to make that transition from death to life. You just got to trust Christ and the cross. That is it. He's our transition from death to life to life I ask you to close your eyes with me today and I don't know where you are today maybe you find yourself somewhere on a spectrum maybe maybe you find yourself really in verses 1, 2 and 3 and you really would like to make that transition into verses 4 to 10 with new affections for God, being alive to God all you have to do is ask him in your heart, that's it genuinely ask for forgiveness Genuinely ask God for forgiveness and mercy, and he will take you into a new life. You can pray this prayer with me. Father, I recognize for the first time that I am dead in sin and transgressions. And I ask today, Father, that you take me into life now. I trust Christ in what he has done in my life. I trust Christ for what he has done for me. 
I desire to be that new person, Father God, that new woman who walks in life and not death. In Jesus' name, amen. A simple prayer like that, to me and you, might seem exactly that simple. But understand something, God looks at the human heart. And for anyone who prayed that sincerely from their heart, please, you can see me, see Pastor John after that, we'd like to speak to you. God bless you.